0: 2 by Mike Lockwell. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, Pete Najarian, and Mike Poe. Tonight on Fast, we're all over the after-hours action. Shares of NVIDIA, the chip stock on the move on earnings. The company's call is just kicking off. We're listening for any commentary on the chip shortage. We'll bring you all the big headlines straight ahead. Plus, Ford, Motoring higher once again today. The stock rallying as the company doubles down on its EV efforts. So is there any gas left in the tank on this trade? We'll debate that. And later, the game's back on. GameStop roaring back to life. So what is driving the Reddit favorite higher this time? We will find out. we start off with a big bank beatdown. The nation's top bankers taking some serious heat today on Capitol Hill. See as a J.P. Morgan City, Goldman, Wells Fargo, Morgan Stanley, and Bank of America kicking off two days of testimony before Congress. Congress. And if you want a taste of how things went down, check out this exchange between Senator Elizabeth Warren and J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon.
1: Mr. Dimon, how much did J.P. Morgan collect in overdraft fees from their consumers in 2020? Well, you're... I think your numbers are totally inaccurate, but we'll have to sit down privately is and a, go through is that. It's a public number. And, I, and I, also, I also want to point out we did not overdraft. Can, can you just answer count. my question? We, we How did much did JP Morgan, Morgan collect? How much, in fact, did and, and, and JP Morgan did. collect in overdraft fees from their customers in 2020? Do you know the number? I don't know the number in front of me but well, we, I actually when, have the upon, number in front of me request, upon request we waived the fees. 3 billion dollars we waived the fees for customers upon request if they were un, under stress because of covid but you could fix that right now mr diamond will you commit right now to refund the one and a half billion dollars you took from consumers during the pandemic no
0: not pretty Um, Tim, what'd you make of today's hearing? And does this hearing tell us that even though banks did a lot of work during the pandemic, they came out with very good balance sheets out of this pandemic, out of this great recession, uh, that they still have got targets on their backs?
1: Well, that's the important question. The target on the back that maybe came off in the Trump administration and maybe it's back on. um, And and look, it, it took banks, by the way, three quarters of the way through the Trump administration to really start to break out. Um, and, and really only going into elections, strangely enough, as it may have appeared that we we're going to get a change in the White House uh, from November on. If you look at uh, Bank of America's outperformed the S&P by 45 percent, Citibank 51 percent from November 1st. So just in terms of bank stocks and how they perform, and is this an environment where you, you don't want to own bank stocks because you think the target's back on? I, I don't know. Um, and look, without getting into you know, deep substance about what was covered today, uh, I, I do think that this is often great political theater for anyone that chooses to to use it as a platform to do so. Uh, and I do mean in Washington. And, and, and so um, I don't think that overdraft fees, by the way, are inherently evil. I think there's a reason for them, and I think there's a place for them in the consumer banking world. I also look at J.P. Morgan's record first quarter numbers. Uh, and they, they were not necessarily built off of uh, consumer and community banking revenues. They were built off of investment banking revenues. They were built off of uh, an, an enormous FIC uh, business, their fixed income business and their currency trading business. And so, um, and maybe we all believe what we all pay for that in the end if banks are making so much money, um, but it wasn't the consumer being gouged, it was really loan loss provisions that, that have been rolling off of banks in terms of their income statements that were very, very conservative and banks hunkered down. So, look, I know banks um, have played a major role uh, in, in the last 20 years in terms of some of the, the credit cycles, if not have been the, the culprit uh, of such. But, um, you know, today to me uh, is, is not taking the luster off of a banking investment that to me for investors. And, and by the way, Citibank, excuse me, J.P. Morgan, at two and a half times tangible book, Not Cheap. Um, But the quality of these earnings and the the, the credit quality and the dynamics that actually could be things to be worried about in the future right now still looks really good. So this didn't put me off. I thought it was kind of funny.
0: (laughs) Um, Certainly a lot of grandstanding, as as these uh, hearings typically are, no matter who is uh, called to Capitol Hill or or by, by Zoom these days. J.P. Morgan, by the way, made 130 billion dollars in revenue last year. So one and a half billion is a you know a, a drop in the bucket. It's pocket change for Jamie Dimon. That's not the point, though, Pete. The Pete. The point, Pete, is that we are in a democratically controlled government at this point. You saw the line of questioning that a lot of senators had on the banking committee today, and we also see rates and and investors seem to be comfortable with where rates are, that there's not going to be a big spike. We haven't breached that March high, 174. So is this the environment that that you want to be a bank investor in? I think so, uh,
2: Mel. I've been in the banks for a long time, and I continue to want to hold on to them. I still think many of them trade very inexpensively. I think, to Tim's point, you look at J.P. Morgan and where it trades versus Tangible Book, yeah, that one feels a little bit stretched, but I think it's because of the quality of what J.P. Morgan represents. And I think You know, when you go across and you look at the banking industry, I think that the the folks that are at home and those that are, are watching the markets day in and day out have a much different view of the banks than certainly what we are seeing up when uh, Tim said political theater, it is theater. These guys just want a grandstand in terms of everything I see, where they're just sort of trying to put out a point to everybody, and, and and I don't know that we're buying it. I'm not buying it. I think that the banks have done an amazing job ever since, obviously, the financial crisis. We've been watching and focusing on the banks and looking at their balance sheets, and they, they had to show us all of their cash and everything else and the dividends. We've gone through just about everything. We've gone through it to the point where I think we know just about everything about every one of these banks and to to the another one of Tim's points, I'll tell you what, I totally agree with him is I don't know that I see any kind of gouging going on. I, I, I don't I haven't witnessed or seen anything like that. As a matter of fact. The investment bank side of things and what they've been able to do and the execution just shows me just how well and fine-tuned these banks really are these days. And that, that goes from Bank of America to Citi to J.P. Morgan to Wells Fargo, which does have some stumbles once in a while. But I like these banks still very much so,
0: Mel. So far, to defenders, to investors in the banks. Mike <laughs> co where do you stand?
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm just curious when the last time we saw banking executives or any executives – for that matter, asked to come down and speak before Congress so that they could get a pat on the back. That doesn't happen. It's always going to be polemical (laughs) kinds of conversations like the ones that we saw today. And of course, you referenced the size of the fees that she outlined, the $1.463 billion, I think, was the number that she threw Mm -hmm. out. It's interesting because a lot of us look at financial statements. I hadn't picked that one out. I'm not exactly sure where she got it. There's a lot of numbers on big bank uh, financial statements, as you might well imagine. But I think it's important to remember that we're talking about a bank that has north of $3 trillion in assets, probably just shy of $2 trillion in deposits. That might be another way to kind of think about what the scale of those fees are, if they were, in fact, accurate. Uh, They're still pretty, pretty small. And, of course, you know this is not a situation we shouldn't, as I think Tim alluded to, have a situation where there is no penalty whatsoever for something like an overdraft. Now, whether or not there was gouging, I don't think there was. One of the things that Jamie Dimon did say was that if somebody asked for forgiveness during this period on that, that they were granting it. Um, Now, of course, they probably weren't advertising that as soon as you logged on to your account every single time, because otherwise those numbers would probably be much smaller still. But I think that's an important thing to remember as well.
0: Yeah. Uh, Dan, where do you stand on the banks at this point?
4: Yeah, I think these guys laid it out pretty clearly. I mean, what happened today was a bit of a joke. Um, when you think about these banks going forward for the back half of 2021, I, I mean, Tim referenced the outperformance since November. Um, the XLF ETF the tracks of banking sector is up 27% year-to-date. That's more than um, double the performance of the S&P 500. And I think it's important to go and look at that, you know, that valuation that Pete and um, Tim just mentioned on J.P. Morgan. Obviously, at very near all-time highs here, but two and a half tangible book. You could look at any of its money center peers and just say, hey, listen, there's a gap to kind of be filled there if we're going to continue with some of the trends that are beneficial to these franchises. I'll just say this, though, for the back half of the year, we are likely to see a massive deceleration, at least in some of the investment banking activities that have driven a lot of the performance over the last um, year or so. And then the rate situation is a really interesting one here. You know, Mel, you just said 174 was that high. Well, let me tell you, that low, that morning in the 10-year U.S. Treasury that we had on the April jobs number down there at 146. Here we are, we're kind of in the middle of that range here, and I don't really see this the tremendous um, impetus for rates to go much um, higher right now. And I'll just say this, you know, we think back to 2013 and 14, when we had the so-called taper tantrum, when the Fed was considering tapering uh, quantitative easing. Well, ZERP, their move off of zero interest rate policy came far, far later here. So, you know, the whole idea that maybe rates overshot to the downside. The Fed did lower Fed funds to basically zero a little more than a year ago. Um, And here we are at one and a half percent. Maybe that's where we should be. And maybe that doesn't really benefit the banking sector in the back half of the year if we're not going to have tremendous upward pressure on rates.
0: Yeah. How do you think about rates and the importance of rates to banks, Tim, at this juncture? And and with the backdrop also that Investment banking was really juiced up by the SPAC boom and all, you know, uh, corporate issuance, et cetera, et cetera, that happened during the pandemic. It happened during, you know, the first quarter in particular, you know, maybe a little bit over into the second quarter. But it's probably not going to be replicated, given the SEC crackdown on SPACs. Well,
1: yeah, these these comps are going to be really tough. Yeah, but. Uh, I think there's two reasons banks move on rates. Remember, banks actually struggled as stocks struggled under uh, a higher rate environment because overall it was a risk-off environment, and these were the best-performing stocks, as we've all pointed out. They've outperformed. Why wouldn't they get knocked down a peg when people are running for the door? Um, that was kind of part of the move. Yes. Uh, net interest margins and look, people that never thought to follow the 210 spread suddenly got very fluent on the 210 spread. And, and yes, the, the, the curve has steepened dramatically um, off of the lows of covid, as it probably should. But but I, I just think that we, we also said early in covid when banks were underperforming, we'd, we'd have these battles on the desk. I know. And they were always friendly battles, of course. Um, But that what were the banks representative of the real economy or was the market? Because the banks, in many cases, were actually underperforming uh, and they're underperforming dramatically. So, again, I actually think that the broader economic story that's been very supportive and and obviously not only uh, unlocking all of this pent-up demand, but, but really, truly a case where at least for the next six to nine months, we've got a ton of money working for the economy, and it will help banks. And even if we stay relatively flat on the yield curve, I think it's still a great environment.
0: How should we think about banks in this uh, economy, Pete? Are, are banks the risk on trade, or are other trades, in your view, better ways to play a, uh, an economy that is reopening?
2: yeah that that's an interesting concept, Mel because of the fact that when you look at these banks, i think we are looking at, you know, and everybody's been talking about it, but the investment bank side of things, because of the trading and because of the volumes, and because of a lot of different things, a little bit less about where the rates are right now, I, I think anyway. But I, it's, it's an interesting thought. I mean, you know, I think going forward, I look at how inexpensive I feel like they still are, even though we have had that run from November to now. And I'm not talking about JP Morgan. I think there are other levels of banks below that where you can find much better value. And yet, you know, I think there's... A nice gap there that they can make up and start to catch up. Maybe not get all the way up to where J.P. Morgan is, but something very close. And I think there's a lot of different names out there. As a matter of fact, when you look at something like a Capital One where they've got all of that Credit card side of things in terms of their revenue. And yes, they still have that banking side. That performance has been absolutely extraordinary. So it depends on what we're talking about specifically on banks. Are we talking about financials? Are we talking about banks? Are we talking about a Goldman Sachs or a Morgan Stanley? Or are we talking about a JP Morgan or a Bank of America? I think there's a lot of different ways to view this right now. And I think those that have the exposure in the investment banking industry still have a little bit of, uh, or a lot more room, I think, to the upside in terms of what they're going to be able to make over the next six months, nine months.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, take a look at uh, a Blackstone, for instance. That just hit a new high, new all-time high earlier this week. Yep. So financials are broad swath. So favorite yeah. financial, Mike Coe.
3: Yeah, I think I like Morgan Stanley, especially for as long as, you know, we have you know, asset prices at relatively high levels. I mean, they've really transitioned very effectively, I think, to the asset management business, and that's a business that benefits from higher asset prices. It's as simple as that. And another quick point I would make just in terms of valuation, you know, it's only since the credit crisis we would always talk about valuation of financials in terms of their price relative to book value. And, of course, we always will say, you know, all else equal, assuming that they're in decent health, if they get below one times book, that the thing is cheap. Of course, prior to the credit crisis, we should remember that we certainly weren't saying they were expensive when they were trading at much higher levels than that, two, three times. So J.P. Morgan at two and a half times, is that a high level relative to its history since the credit crisis? Yes. I mean, it is true for all financials. But, you know, in a longer history, we can take a look at a lot of these big banks and you're going to see that the multiples to tangible book value were oftentimes at these levels are much higher. Mm -hmm.
0: All right, coming up, we're tracking the after hours action that we're watching in shares of NVIDIA. That stock is down after its latest quarterly report. The company's call is underway. We're dialed in. We'll bring you all the big headlines. Plus, Ford fired up. The stock driving higher again today, with the company told investors that lit a new spark in this trade. Stick around. Fast Money's back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on NVIDIA. Shares on the move lower by about one and a quarter percent. The company's call is now underway. Let's get to Josh Lipton, who's got the details. Josh.
5: So, Melissa, remember heading into this print, NVIDIA enjoyed a nice move. It was up about 15 percent over the past three months. It was up about 20 percent so far this year. Turning to the results, beats on the bottom and top. Q2 guidance of about 6.3 billion. The expectation was closer to 5.5 billion. Gaming, 2.76 billion in the quarter. Data center comes in at 2.05 billion. I did check in with Matt Bryson over at Wedbush. He says, good revenue number, great revenue guide, in his opinion. Data center meeting expectations. Gross margins expected to improve, he says. That suggests a favorable mix in the quarter ahead. So why the lackluster reaction here? Matt's hot take, the bar was high. Expectations were elevated heading into this. But in his opinion, not much to pick at in this report. He maintains an outperformed rating on the name. CFO Colette Kress is on the call right now. She says Q1 was, in her words, exceptionally strong, gaming up 106% year over year. She says channel inventories are lean and she expects to remain supply constrained into the second half. Gaming, she says, also did benefit from crypto mining, but it's hard, she says, to determine to what extent. Data center up 79% year over year. Strong demand, she says, from the big cloud vendors. Back to you all.
0: All right, Josh, thanks. Josh Lipton. So the line items were good. The the guide was good for the current quarter. Pete, is this your opportunity for NVIDIA?
2: On a little bit of a pullback, maybe, Mel. You know, I I like this name so much, but, you know, I've always uh, been a little bit apprehensive because of the P.E. that it's always traded at, which is, an incredible PE relative to most of their peers, but their growth absolutely stands up. It seems like every single quarter on the delivery, and now they're talking about this guidance being very strong as well. So. At some point in time, what I really like going forward, though, would be this four for one split that they've continually that's that hasn't gotten answered yet. But at some point, we're going to find out whether or not that's going to happen. And if so, Mel, I think that gets a little bit more appealing to somebody like me who on a stock like this, I like it, but I want to be able to trade options against my stock position if I do it. And it gives me that opportunity at, a, at an easier level than what we are trading at right now.
0: Yeah. Dan Nvidia, where do you stand?
4: You know, I think Josh laid it out pretty good. I mean, the stock had a rip right into this print here. It's outperforming the S&P. It's outperforming the Nasdaq. It's outperforming many of its peers right now. I I think, you know, Pete mentioned P.E. at 46 times. I'd point to the price of sales. I mean, this thing trades about 17 and a half times expected 2021 sales. This is nearly a $400 billion Market cap company. This is a very cyclical business. We also looked at those line items. You know, it seems a lot like some of the growth areas that they had data center, gaming, crypto um, back in 2017. Obviously, the supply constraint is probably keeping a cap on some of that guidance, but it seems kind of fully valued here. It's very near that prior high from a couple months ago, near about 650. So I suspect it's going to remain range bound. There was nothing in that quarter that should break it out, in my opinion. But if you like the story and you think things get heat up a little bit in the back half of the year when supply comes back online then you probably want to buy this thing um you know kind of you know back towards those levels where it was a week or two ago
0: you mentioned price of sales was around 17
4: yes ma'am
0: 17 you know i mean in intel's where tim like three so here's the ultimate would you rather because this is a value versus a momo <laughs> right intel or nvidia well here yeah, and this
1: this is a tough one for me, and I'm glad you asked me and I didn't ask myself, right? i so, um too. Although I'm for not as saying. bad as Grasso, <laughs> and we all know that. So, so look, um, the, the, the bottom line here is, though, that gross margin at 66.2% is moving higher. Um, and again, they're they're in high-margin chips, and, and they're in exciting growth areas. I think the bar's high. Um, but I look at the stock that topped out on that blow-off top for the NASDAQ on September 2nd. Uh, everybody pointed out that it rallied almost 18% in six sessions. Um, you're buying weakness on this. This stock's been consolidating. I think uh, that that the 79% in data center, 106% in gaming um, and the strength of their business. We forgot. We haven't even talked about the integration of, of, of ARM, and I think there's a lot there. So I'm not someone that chases valuations often but this is one that's growing into that valuation. I actually like it more than I did back in September. That's for sure.
0: Wow. So you like NVIDIA? Yeah. Wow. And you own Intel though. Do you own NVIDIA?
1: Yep. Okay. Apples and oranges. Right. But you just picked a child that you like better
0: than the other kid, but you know, that's, that's fine.
1: (laughs) Look, I have two at home. Fortunately, they don't watch Fast Money, um, but you know, they might start to wonder. So.
0: I know. Um, Mike, it is a pleasure to have you on the full panel and not just for Options Action. So I will give you carte blanche, Intel, NVIDIA, or a, a chip stock of your choice.
3: Yeah, so, I mean, Intel is really the turnaround story, right? So that's the... It's a, a reason why it trades at such a big discount to NVIDIA. And NVIDIA is at the forefront, and not just of something like gaming or just something like crypto. They're at the forefront of a lot of things, and of course when you have a business that's a little bit supply constrained, that suggests that the demand is there, the pricing power is there, that's built into those margins, and the margin expansion demonstrates that they've got what people want, they've got what people need in a number of sectors, all of which are growing, and I think that's the reason that you have this high valuation. We've seen this in several high-flying stocks that have reported over the past couple of weeks, that they're getting up to prior highs. It's just a tough level to break out from. But I agree that the stock didn't trade lower. It's going to struggle to get through that 648 high, I think, that we saw in mid-April. But I think there's a chance that we get through that. And if we do, uh, I think we could see substantially higher prices. And I would just quickly point out, since I do tend to look at the options, that actually options premium were coming out of these names. Even going into earnings, it was implying only about a 4.2% move so it did seem like the options market was anticipating that it was going to struggle here a little bit but that's an opportunity for people who want to take a risk measured way to get long because the options have gotten cheaper and that might be the way to play it for the upside
0: all right we're just getting started here on fast money here's what's coming up next
2: revved up investors putting the pedal to the metal on shares of ford today but is there more gas left in the tank Plus, Amazon, Exxon, and Icon, all three making big headlines today. But which one hits home for the traders? We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns.
0: Welcome back to Fast Money. Ford motoring higher once again today. The stock can in its best day since last June as the company doubles down on its EV efforts. Let's get to Phil LeBeau with the details. Hey, Phil.
6: Hey Melissa, I love that chart because at 1390, where the Ford shares closed, That is real close to going over $14 for the first time in five years. Five years since they've been over $14, and here's the reason why. The company held its Capital Markets Day today and outlined an ambitious strategy when it comes to electric vehicles. Investing $30 billion through 2025, that's an increase of $8 billion from its previous commitment. 40% of its global sales by 2030 will be pure electric vehicles, and that includes making and selling an electric Explorer, as well as a Lincoln Navigator. The F-150 Lightning A week after its debut, and it's been a red-hot success so far, at least in terms of reservations. The company now has 70,000 reservations. Remember, the vehicle goes on sale next spring. Let's see how much further those reservation numbers go. The Lightning, however, when we asked CEO Jim Farley today during Capital Markets Day, look, do you expect the Lightning to replace internal combustion engine versions of the F-150? And he said no. He thinks it's going to be additive. So that's encouraging. If you believe that it's going to actually add to the number of F-series that are sold uh, by Ford, will the company be able to be profitable when it comes to this conversion into EVs? It says that by 2023, it's targeting an EBITDA margin of 8%. Put this into some perspective. 2019, really the last true comparison you can make, the company's EBITDA margin was 4.1%. So they're looking to almost double that by 2023. They also believe that they can bring down the cost of the battery pack. Now, initially, it's going to be over $100. They believe that they can get it down to $80 per kilowatt hour by 2030. Karen Energy Research is forecasting that it's going to be tough for even GM and Tesla, who are leading the industry to get down below $90 by 2030. But Ford says it will target $80 per kilowatt hour for its battery packs by 2030. Speaking of GM and Tesla and Ford, take a look at these stocks since the beginning of this year. And look who's outperforming everybody else. Ford, off to its best year since 2010, Melissa, up what? Now more than 60%. Since January first, Melissa, back to you.
0: It has been a crazy run, and as we speak, Phil, the stock is above that fourteen dollar mark that you cited. It is uh, pushing higher in the after-hour session by almost two percent. Thank you, Phil Lebeau. As always, the question here is: At these valuations, and Tim, we've been talking about Ford for a long time, and the stock it continues to go higher. I mean, it's pushing the boundaries here. Um, So, in terms of valuation, right now, it looks like it has a higher forward PE than GM. Is that deserved?
1: It does. Well, the EV business, um, again, that gross margin that was discussed by Phil is something that's impressive. Again, the, the fleet and the strength of the F-150, the Lightning. I mean, one, once they made this announcement, once they, they talked about price points between forty dollars and $50,000 that are very realistic. And again, I, you know, Tesla has had trouble hitting their mark on, on some of these numbers. Um, I, I think they... they, look, they the beginning to goose up the multiple and give it anything according to EV is, it's, it's the same exercise that I'd like to do, wh- whether we're talking about Disney and, and a Netflix streaming multiple, or, or as you you know, you know get into Walmart and an Amazon e-commerce multiple. We're talking about legacy players um, who have great businesses and have never been run better, and that's part of the key for me at Ford. This company's never been run better and more profitably, um, and, and not necessarily running in segments and in geographies where they make no sense. So you know, the, the, the dynamic here. Ford, $55 billion market cap. Tesla, $600 billion market cap. I I realize apples and oranges. And again, Tesla folks should be coming out there and saying we're not a car company. Well, Ford is a car company and it's an EV focused car company, more so on some level than GM, who's also an autonomous hydrogen fuel cell commercial. And and I think, you know, if people want more of a pure play here, um, that's why they're choosing Ford.
0: You know, what's interesting about this chart, and I didn't realize this until I was looking at the charts this afternoon, is that, you know, GM hit its all-time high, record high, just about a month ago or so, month and a half ago. Ford's last, all, Ford's all-time high was decades ago. Decades ago. So what does what does that tell you about Ford? Mike? Does that tell you anything about where the stock should be today?
3: Well, I mean, let's just take a look at it a Sorry. couple different ways. I mean, if yeah. you believe that there's... Uh, Sorry, were you talking to Tim or to me? Mike, Mike. If you're just talking about brand loyalty, uh, obviously they have some. I mean, an important thing to think about. So they have focused on SUVs and trucks. If you make a transition to electric vehicles, this is actually a particularly strong category for the use of electric power. There's a couple of reasons for that. For one thing, the margins on those things are substantially higher. So they have a lot more to work with. If you use a 100 kilowatt hour battery and you're paying $100 a kilowatt to get it, that's $10,000 component cost in the construction of a light duty truck. And by the way, the best vehicle sold in the world is the F-150 light duty truck that Ford sells. It's trading about 10 times next 12 month earnings, probably nine times full year 2022 earnings. I mean, that obviously gives you a little bit of a floor. As you point out, this is a company that had a $60 billion enterprise value 10 years ago. And they've already demonstrated that they can build a good electric vehicle with the Mustang Mach-E. So they have the technology. They have the strategic focus. They're putting a lot more capex into their business than companies like Tesla are. And that's not to say that you should short Tesla. But certainly, if you're looking at the entire space, then you should be thinking about this company. And besides which, when we talk about the legacy automakers as just being a pure autoplay, Tesla is not a pure autoplay. What's to prevent a company that's putting, you know, we'll call it $6 billion in potential CapEx into their business, not to expand into other areas that have a closer affiliation with things like energy? To me, Ford is still, despite the fact that it's had a strong rally here, a no-brainer.
0: All right. Our next guest says Ford is sending a convincing message to the street that it's ready for the future. Colin Langan is a senior auto analyst at Wells Fargo Securities. Colin, great to speak with you. Um, you've got a $15 price target on the stock, and the stock is now above 14 bucks. So where do you go from here? I mean, should we give it a full valuation of 15 or maybe even higher, given what it's laid out today?
7: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, our, our valuation is based on a little over three times EBITDA. It's a pretty low number, so there's definitely plenty of upside for Ford. And I think today really showed that they have a, a good vision for the future. Um, it was, I think, one of the best investor days I've seen.
0: How do we know it can execute? I mean, it, it, can, it can set out goals, for instance, on, on battery technology, but, but battery technology is very difficult. Um, and we've seen a lot of battery companies go at it and, and not do so well. And I'm just wondering, what makes you think Ford can actually execute on these ambitious plans?
7: I think it's a great question. I think it's a great question for all the companies. But I mean, if you look at the Mach-E, I think that's one of the most compelling EVs from a traditional automaker. And so I think they already have products. I actually got to see the the F-150 Lightning today. It's a a great looking vehicle and it has amazing capabilities. And they're thinking about unique things in terms of being able to to use to charge your home. So I I think they're starting to show the evidence. They they have a long road to go. Uh, But I thought the day was really interesting. And I think what also people are not focused on is the whole section that focused on the connected car. Because one of the things I worry about with traditional auto companies is that they're so focused on chasing the BEV that they're actually missing the connected opportunity. And Ford clearly showed that today. And that was really, I think, one of the most exciting parts for me.
4: Hey, Colin. So I have one of those Mustang mach I like it a whole heck of a lot. But one of the issues that I have right now is a little range anxiety, man. I take that thing out and I'm getting a little low and I see a Tesla charging station and I just want to stop there. Um, what did Ford talk about building out that network? Because that's going to be a really important part of this. If they're going to have 40 percent of their cars being made by the end of the decade, um, EV, they're going to really need to invest in that area. Yeah, I mean, I think that is one of the concerns and some of the
7: feedback that Ford has been getting. Uh, they have a plan to roll out more EV charging. I think they're using more of the public networks. And, and quite frankly, I, I'm, I think most people suspect that the, the new infrastructure bill will include some money to support that expansion. So, um, you know, I, I think there's more to come on that.
2: And when you're looking at, at these various vehicles, and obviously the Lightning, I think, is the feature vehicle that we're talking about primarily – how does that match up against Tesla? When we're talking about, you know, trucks and all the rest of it, in your opinion, how do, how do they match up against one another? Are they competitors, really? Or, or what is your opinion?
7: I mean, I think something like the Lightning, I think it appeals much more to a commercial customer, which is uh, Ford's bread and butter. Um, so I, I don't think they're they're a little bit more like apples and oranges, in my opinion. Uh, but, you know, the, the Mach-E, I think, clearly could take some share from from vehicles like the Model 3. It's just not like there's no overlap. Um, I mean, Tesla is, is leading if you look at some of the stats and sort of, you know, uh, EV powertrain technology today. But the reality is, is the stats of the Mach-E, which is, you know, Ford's sort of first uh, entry in, in a total of dedicated platform, you know, is actually quite impressive. It's it's far better than most traditional automakers and pretty close to the heels of Tesla, which is a, is a great sign.
0: Colin, thanks for your thoughts. We appreciate it. Thanks. Colin Langan. Uh, Dan Nathan, what do you think of, yes. of Ford?
4: Uh, listen, I, I think this whole panel, I think our, our whole Fast Money panel has been on this story for, for a while. Yeah. Um, and I know that Tim and Karen have owned this stock. Um, listen, I, I think it's going to break out. You, you talked about that $14 level. I think that you put a little of that Tesla pixie dust valuation on this um, growing <laughs> part of their business, and, and you have a higher stock. I mean, he, and Colin just said it about his own estimates there, too. So um, to me, I think you buy it on, on pullbacks. The stock was just 12 a few weeks ago. And I think probably in that last month, we were all like recommending it as a final trade. So here it is about 14, big technical level, breaking out here, multi-year highs. Um, I think you continue to buy it on pullbacks.
0: Who's the biggest loser off of Ford's success, Tim? Stock wise.
1: Uh, uh, stock wise, um, look, I, I think money's been allocated from GM to Ford just because I think GM was out in front on this one. I, I, I think it's mm. like, I think it's Tesla, uh, but I think you know the the folks that own Tesla that have been uninterested in paying attention to fundamentals are, are still holding on to that dynamic. I think um, the real competitive landscape that was still far out in the future um, is here and now. So it, it's, again, look at those market caps. Um, look at the analyst community that actually uh, are focused on the, the EV side of the auto business. And I'll just leave it at that. Um, and, and I think you know, Tesla has a lot to lose here, if nothing else. It's very clear. Um, he said three times EBITDA, three times EBITDA. I mean, I mean that, it's not even close in terms of the valuation. And again, the most, prop, the most, the most popular car in North America right. is the F-150. Yep. And you're starting with that.
0: That's your base. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> Coming up, we are dealing up a trader's choice. Three big stories hitting the headlines today and how the traders are playing them. And later, GameStop, Unstop, the meme stocks are back on the move today. We'll break down what is driving the big gains. All that and much more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Time for a trader's choice. We lay out three big headlines. The traders pick the one they want to trade. So here we go. Headline number one, Amazon reportedly looking to open brick and mortar pharmacies. The company also closing a deal to buy MGM Studios and announced that Andy Jassy will take over as CEO July 5th. Headline number two, Carl Icahn, the value investor, the activist investor, says he wants to get involved in crypto in a quote unquote relatively big way. And headline number three. Exxon activist hedge fund engine number one, winning at least two seats on the energy giants board in a push for climate, a new climate strategy. So Pete, your choice.
2: I'll go with Exxon, Mel. I I think this is really interesting because, you know, a lot of people, and they talked about this a lot on the network all day about how this is a group of of folks that, that is a little bit less familiar to Wall Street than most. And yet it seems like they are moving things in a very, very fast way in that direction. So what will that change about Exxon? I think it's going to be very interesting to see how this whole thing actually can play out. I, I, I don't really know if I have the answers. It's why a while back I actually shifted away from Exxon towards Chevron because when they lost Rex Tillerson, that was something that um, I felt like there was a change going on with Exxon. And that's exactly what I think we're seeing here is, the battle back and forth, and and I think it's a really intriguing story. That being said, I'll still trade the calls in Exxon. I still think energy is moving to the upside, and I like the price of oil, at least in the shorter term.
0: Mike, Trader's Choice, which headline do you like?
3: Yeah, I think I'm going to go with Exxon as well, Uh, not because I don't think the Amazon stories, and there's been several recently, aren't really interesting, Uh, But I think, you know, part of the thing is that the pharmacy is probably going to move the needle there. The issue here that we have with Exxon is that it does represent a turnaround opportunity. I think it's going to be a very tough row to hoe, though. I mean, it is not that easy to take a carbon-based company like Exxon and try to turn it around from an environmental point of view. But, of course, the people that are kicking the tires here and thinking that it can be done are really trying to make it happen. And so I think there is potentially more opportunity for some price action in the stock coming out of the Exxon news than there is out of the Amazon story.
0: I know we call it Trader's Choice, but Dan, I'm just going to go to you on Amazon. What do you think of the report about Amazon opening (laughs) up pharmacies?
4: Well, listen, I I think there was a lot of naysayers a few years ago when they bought Whole Foods and they see what they've been able to do with that, integrating it in a real barbell approach as you think of bricks and mortar and integrating it into their e-commerce and just with Prime. So it's been really a home run. I, I suspect that given the The economies of scale and the logistics capabilities, they're going to be able to be very disruptive. I mean, that's the story, right? When Amazon goes into any market, um, they're able to be very disruptive. I'll just say this about that stock. Tim was talking about NVIDIA, you know, that September 2nd high. We know that Amazon's been basing now for nine months or so. This is an investment period. They're looking at it. I think their new CEO is going to make a really big imprint uh, at some point on this company do something new, uh, new and different in, in the first year or so. And that's probably going to be the thing that breaks this company or at least the stock out of this doldrums that it's been in for the last nine months.
0: All right. Coming up, the Reddit rebellion back in a big way. We'll break down what is driving the renewed interest in these meme stocks and later. Happy birthday, Dow. You don't look a day over 100. <laughs> Maybe it's time to retire. We'll debate that and more when Fast Money Returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. It is time for GameStop, the Wall Street bets favorite, jumping nearly 16% today to hit its highest level since late March. And Mike spotted some signature uh, day trading activity in this name in the options market. Mike, what'd you see?
3: Yeah, if volatility is what you're interested in, look no farther than GameStop. So less than 2% of the non-penny stocks in the Russell 2000 have implied volatilities over 100. The forward 30-day volatility for GameStop is 170%. Right now, the options market is implying that this stock's going to move 11.5% just by Friday. So today, we saw about 2.7 times the average daily options volume, which is already high. That puts us at about 350,000 contracts total. The most active options were the weekly 250 strike calls. Those were trading for around 14 bucks, and buyers of those were obviously betting that the stock can finish the week well above that strike. And all of the activity that we were seeing was really short-dated. So whether it was calls or puts, and nine out of the ten most active options were calls, they all expire on Friday, and much of this stuff was actually being intraday trading. So uh, it seems like the Reddit rebellion crowd is back with big force in this name.
0: Yeah, well, GameStop isn't the only meme stock that jumped in today's session. Check out some of the other Reddit favorites, Express, AMC, Bed Bath & Beyond, Skills, Also soaring, AMC got an upgrade today to a hold rating from a sell rating. So that juiced that stock. Um, Tim, as you take a look at these boards, do any interest you at this point? Because for some, the stories have changed. I mean, for GameStop, it's a deeper involvement by Ryan Cohen. For AMC, for instance, it's a number of capital raises that have strengthened its balance sheet.
1: Come on. I mean, broken company before. Why? You know, look, I, the fact that the short interest dropped and you had people squeeze, you know, look, GameStop's only up four four thousand four thousand nine hundred and ten percent this year. Um, I mean, why not go a little higher? None of it makes sense. Look, no, I'm not buying and and, uh, um, at me all you want. But but, you know, Ryan Cohen's had phenomenal success. And maybe there's something to turn around. It's a 17 billion dollar company that doesn't make money. Um, It's in the price, uh, even if you get a turnaround. So, no, I'm not chasing AMC. Uh, Good for them. I like going to the movie theater. Um, But that was a dying business before.
0: I bet he likes the popcorn. Uh, Dan, Tim didn't take my bait. Do. Did not take my bait they did not. <laughs> well, the story you know, the story's changing.
4: I know. The story's not changing. I think it's really important to understand that their sales are expected to be down this year 45% from their peak in 2017, 2018. And to Tim's point, they do not make money. So they have one asset here, and that is that short interest versus right their uh, market cap here. So they should be selling stock to those investors who want to buy their stock every single day and putting cash on their balance sheet. One man is not going to transform that company, but a cash hoard could. Um, But really, you're just going to be staring at a pile of cash in an unprofitable business, and they will need to pivot.
0: All right. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That is Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, we are celebrating a very big birthday, but one of our traders says the party is over. We will explain when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. Shares a snowflake under pressure in the after hours on the back of earnings. We've got a big interview coming your way at the top of the hour. Jim is talking with the snowflake CEO on the back of the results. That is straight ahead, 6 p.m., Mad Money. All right, tonight we are celebrating a very big milestone for an old, old friend. It's not Guy. Uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average turning 125 <laughs> years old today. The index looking a little different than it used to. None of the 12 originals remain. Obviously, instead, it is populated by the likes of Visa, J.P. Morgan, J and J, Apple, and Microsoft. Uh, Tim, though, you're saying happy birthday, but man, maybe time it's time to retire. Why?
1: Yeah, yeah you know, uh, later boomer. I mean, I think <laughs> you got a case here where the the, the relevancy of this index. We don't, uh, you know, we're respectful on the show in many different ways, and in corners even when we don't believe in something, but. Uh, We don't talk about the Dow Jones as a relevant yardstick for the market, other than when we're talking about uh, industrial companies that have lagged and have been value plays. But it's not even about good or bad companies. It's about relevancy. And first of all, it's about the constitution of the index. A price-weighted index, to me, makes zero sense, okay? The, the fact that if a stock goes up, um, it's actually a self-fulfilling dynamic that you're actually chasing it higher in terms of a weighting if you happen to be tracking this, or vice versa. It exaggerates the moves lower. So, um, look, the, the relevancy of, of the components and the exposure to, say, technology, the fact of the matter is that you know outside of Microsoft um, and, and now CRM, you've got about a 9%, 10% Uh, position uh, weighting in tech stocks in the top 40% of the Dow. It makes no sense. But again, price-weighted index, why? Uh, It's almost like you're making up the numbers.
0: Price-weighted meaning that the price of the share, the bigger the price of the share of each stock, the heavier the weighting within the index. So let's say Apple split 10 times, it would all of a sudden be the smallest weighting in the index, even though it is the biggest company. Um, And hence, that is why we use the S&P 500 in large part, the more you know. Right, Mike?
3: (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty silly to think about on a price-weighted basis. And I think cap-weighted indices are the way to go. And we have so many indices now because they're used to create other kinds of products that are exchange-traded, like ETPs. So there's no real need to uh, focus on this. And I I don't wouldn't mind if it retired.
0: All right. Still a milestone for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Up next, your final trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour.
1: Talk about JP Morgan and, and the valuation. 16 times next year's earnings is $195 stock. Uh, I, I think there's still plenty left here for best of breed bank.
0: Pete Najarian.
2: You know, the Reddit crowds, they're attacking all kinds of different stocks. Mel, one of them I like a lot is Blackberry. They were in there aggressively buying today. I'm in those calls. They expire in a week and a half.
0: Mike Co.
3: Yeah, if you're playing for a breakout above the April highs in Nvidia, I think
4: you can buy some calls there. Dan Nathan. Yeah, I'm a tough one with Tim's JP Morgan call. I like it, but I kind of like selling the XLF here, too. I think it's as good as it gets for the bank for the time being.
0: <laughs> Thanks for watching Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.